0: Welcome uh, to the afternoon session of the first day of our Conference on Natural Law and Natural Rights in Contemporary Jurisprudence, and welcome back to those of you who are with us this morning. I'm Brad Wilson of the Madison Program, and I'm simply uh, here to introduce uh, the uh, moderator of our next panel, a good friend of mine and of the Madison Program's, Stephen Whelan, Uh, Steve uh, is important in a number of ways, not only having a successful law practice, but being a very good advisor uh, to the Madison program through the years. He's well known at Princeton University, not only as an alum and having a uh, a daughter who is an alum, I believe, uh, but uh, also for uh, there being an important prize to motivate Uh, our undergraduate students, uh, known as the Stephen T. Whalen Senior Thesis Prize in Constitutional Law and Political Thought. That prize we owe to Steve and his family. So I will introduce this and give it over to Steve. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brad. Welcome back, everyone. First of all, I
1: want to express my profound appreciation to the Princeton University Air Conditioning Department. If any of you have been outside, it's like Washington, D.C. in early August, and uh, I right. uh, appreciate more than words can express uh, the climate control that we will be enjoying for the next few hours. As we talk about the subsidiarity of law and the obligation to obey, <clears throat> anyone who came of age in the 1960s certainly remembers the clashes over uh, uh, the duty to obey laws, whether they dealt with uh, the military draft relating to a war and a faraway land or whether they related to the civil rights struggle, which was uh, taking place simultaneously at home. And even though those fires may have uh, tampened, uh, the subject still blazes uh, mightily. And our first speaker is Timothy Endicott, who is a graduate of Harvard College, received his DPhil in Law from Oxford University, uh, where he is Director of Graduate Studies for the Law Faculty at the University of Oxford. He also teaches Jurisprudence constitutional law and administrative law. Among his several publications include vagueness in law. Timothy is there any vagueness in the law? Welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much Stephen and uh, I'd like to say thank you to the program. It's uh, I'm very glad to be here. Chapter 10 in in the Authority of Law mentions the possibility of of speculative authority, but the preface to the book states a, a principle of of theoretical or speculative reasoning, which is that philosophical argument is not the place for deference to authority. So um, I, I'm going to try as I uh, have tried in, in reading uh, John Finnis's book and in uh, teaching with him in seminars at Oxford University to keep that principle in mind and uh, do my best to disagree with uh, a tenet in, that you find in natural law and natural rights, or two tenets rather, that are closely allied to some of the crucial and important truths that the book Articulates and defends about the role of law in, in human communities. And l- let me uh, start by by stating uh, my my own sort of paraphrase of the approach of of the natural law tradition that uh, Finnis uh, works with. Uh, the answer that tradition gives to the question of whether law has the moral force that it claims, and and that will tell you how I'm going to set out to disagree uh, with at least one interpretation of that tradition. The answer is that the law of a state generally does have the moral force that it claims in virtue of, first of all, the moral duty that you and I have to promote the common good in our communities, and secondly, the fact that obedience to lawmakers in a community will promote the common good. So there is a general moral obligation to obey the law. But if the lawmakers make rules that are contrary to the common good, they, by doing so, and to the extent that they do so, lose their authority. Although there may be a collateral moral duty to obey the law, to avoid damaging the capacity that the law may still have to promote the common good. I'm going to challenge both parts of that claim the claim that there's a general moral obligation to obey the law, and also the claim that injustice in the law vitiates that uh, moral obligation. Um, Although the challenge, as you'll see, is consistent with a great deal of the tradition of natural law theory, and and I think you'll also see how much I've drawn on uh, the work that uh, John Finnis did in Natural Law and Natural Rights. But I want to interrupt myself before I really even begin to ask whether law claims moral authority. Uh, I I used to read natural law and natural rights as saying that that law claims authority. Uh, It does so in a fashion uh, on page seven uh, where you read that law does not seek merely to monopolize the use of force and thus to secure peace. It characteristically claims authority to regulate any form of behavior. But that's not actually what the book states. It's said, that is said in a paraphrase of a view of Joseph Raz. And uh, the the preface to, sorry, that that chapter, chapter one of Natural Law and Natural Rights, suggests a a form of endorsement in some fashion of what Raz is doing, perhaps only of his departure from it technique of uh, of Kelson and Austin so it would be hasty to read that part of the book as endorsing the view that law claims authority um, but I think it's consistent to interpret the book as as consistent I think it's right to interpret the book as consistent with that claim uh, I've learned that uh, that's not the view that John Finnis actually takes and he's pointed out to me that that the book is consistent with a contrary view that the law does not claim authority uh, although those who make it and comply with it uh, should treat it as authoritative. Well, I'll I'll tell you what I mean when I I say that law claims authority and then go on to ask whether it has the authority that it claims. A claim, of course, is an an act of an agent. So the notion of law claiming authority is a figure of speech. It's a a metonym for uh, a claim of authority by persons and institutions now of course uh, not all uh, directives from one person to another about what to do are are claim authority Uh, I, I claim I do claim moral authority to direct your conduct if I claim the capacity to make it morally right or wrong for you to act in this way or that way in virtue of my directive to you Uh, but it's certainly possible for me to direct your conduct without claiming moral authority. What about law? Does law claim moral authority? Well, it's not enough that it directs our behavior. Uh, The British Parliament last year in the the Hunting Act uh, enacted in section one that a person commits an offense if he hunts a wild mammal with a dog, with exceptions that I I won't go into. Well, uh, for Parliament to call it an offense is to call it wrongful. And the statement in that section of the act is is part of an enactment, and not a report of the state of affairs. Uh, So the enactment of section one presupposes the authority to make it wrong, to hunt a a mammal with a dog, in virtue of the enactment, and thereby to impose an obligation not to hunt a wild mammal with a dog. So, and, and by making that enactment, presupposing Authority, legitimate authority to impose an obligation. The act by what philosophers call an implicature claims, literally, but by an implicature, authority to regulate behavior in, in the United Kingdom. Now, um, the moral claim of Parliament is associated with uh, all sorts of other um, claims that are only, can only be understood as part of a general. Uh, claim to authority. Parliament goes on to say, to state in an act, that a person guilty of an offense under this act shall be liable on summary conviction to a fine, and that a constable may arrest a person on suspicion. Now, all this terminology of convictions and fines and liability and even the term constable and the authorization to arrest claim authority over the United Kingdom. Parliament could simply have said if anyone hunts a a wild mammal with a dog, something unpleasant will happen to them. And we might try to imagine that a community could be regulated without all this mere uh, verbiage and these implicatures from particular kinds of communicative acts by a legislature. Um, If we were to imagine a community regulated without any of the acts that I, I, I say claim authority, we would have to imagine a community that does without all talk of obligations and rights in this system of control of the community. Uh, it, the institutions, they couldn't be institutions. I don't think the, the persons who get things done in the community would not be able to t- distinguish taxes from penalties. They wouldn't have either taxes or penalties. Or, and they couldn't distinguish legal liabilities from the mere correlative of official freedoms. So I find it hard to imagine a community regulated in the fashion uh, similar to the way in which your community and mine are, are regulated by law that would not do what Parliament did in some systematic fashion. So in the focal case, law claims authority. To say that is to use a figure of speech to refer to an implicature that is found in all the acts of, not all, but many of the acts of uh, institutions exercising lawful lawful powers. I just want to emphasize that this idea that law claims authority is is not the same as the idea that uh, lawmakers claim a right to obedience. Uh, the, the, The Hunting Act claims no right on behalf of Parliament, not even in a figure of speech and not even by implicature, but the Act proposes authority to make it wrongful to hunt a wild mammal so that's all I mean when I ask when when I say that law claims authority does it have the authority that it claims well uh, my answer to that is uh, it does lawmaking authorities have authority uh, over their communities but not the general authority that they potentially claim Um, and conversely that the authority of lawmakers such as it is is not generally vitiated by injustice in their behavior. Now, to reach those arguments, we have to see what can be said in general about the moral force of the law on the basis of features of its nature. And I want to point out three such features of law. They've been pointed out by uh, many people before. So I'll just remind you of them. Features that create necessary connections between law and moral principle. Uh, The first is the fact that law exercises effective control over a community. The second is the fact that law is systematic. And the third is the fact that laws are characteristically general. And I'm going to explain why the moral force of law is not generally dependent on the justice of the law after I've explained why these three features of the law uh, have moral significance and generate obligations to obey the law. So first, the value of effective control over a community. As as John Finnis has pointed out, the mere fact that lawmakers have to some considerable degree effective de facto authority control over a whole community gives them a capacity to coordinate the life of the community in ways that are valuable to the community. In an earlier part of the paper, which I've spared you, I explained the use of the word community. uh, And... Uh, I wanted to use it as a a term for human communities that need certain forms of coordination, which I'm going to go on to argue law um, provides, can can effectively provide. And I'm very lazy, so I defined a community simply as any human community that includes cities, because cities have a need for the coordination that I'm going to talk about in, in the paper. And it also explains why it's going to be useful to talk about Aristotle, uh, who was the the first philosopher of the city. Now, um, this uh, coordinating capacity of de facto control is extremely valuable to any community that needs to undertake complex public projects like the building of sewers or regulation of traffic or even the project of controlling the use of violence between persons, which I take as an example of a public project that every community in my special sense needs. And that's enough to show the moral value of law to all communities and the concern that every reasonable person has to abide by some of the duties that law claims to impose. This valuable capacity does not itself yield a general obligation to obey the law. The coordination that a particular law offers may or may not be valuable to a community. The fact that law can coordinate only means that it can be morally valuable. But the second and third features of law, its systematic character, and its generality show both that it is part of the nature of law that it sometimes imposes moral obligations and also that law does not generally do so. It is morally valuable because some of the coordination it offers just in virtue of its being law is valuable. I suspect that this claim, which may sound ambitious, is is sound simply because of some of the coordination that law provides in virtue of its social functions in, for example, controlling violence. But I won't make that difficult argument because I think it's clearly true in respect of the coordinating reflexive functions of law in controlling itself, the ways in which law regulates itself. And that brings us to the second valuable feature of law, its systematic character. HLA Hart wrote that the defects in a scheme of primary rules are remedied by the union of primary and secondary rules. Rules of recognition, change, and adjudication remedy defects of uncertainty, inertia, and lack of resolution of disputes. And he considered the resulting union of types of rules to be the key to the science of jurisprudence. So it seems that we can find in Hart's own insights an argument that law is necessarily valuable. A community with only primary rules suffers from defects that law by its systematic nature remedies. If we grant that it is valuable to remedy a defect in a community, then law is by nature valuable to a community. Hart might have responded to such an argument that law provides only technical remedies for technical defects. That is, a scheme of purely primary rules is bad in respect of uncertainty, inertia, and lack of resolution at regulating a community. The techniques provided by secondary rules make a legal system technically effective at regulating the community, yet that regulation can be pursued and law can be used better than mere primary rules can be used, Uh, for or against the good of the community. Everything in that uh, response, I've imagined, is true. Yet it does not support the view that law is of no general moral value. Consider a jammed gun. It is technically defective. You can remedy the defect by cleaning it and oiling it. That will make it a good gun, which you can then use to murder someone or to save someone's life by shooting a rattlesnake. So we might say that a gun is of, of no general moral value it is an instrument that can be used for good or ill and as an instrument it can be technically good or bad without any moral value without any value for helping you or me to uh, uh, to live by moral principles Um, a, a smoothly functioning gun is not necessarily morally valuable There is a similarity between guns and law, that they are instruments that can be used for good or bad purposes, but there is a difference. Communities need law for good purposes. Speaking for myself, I do not need a gun for any good purpose. If I lived in rattlesnake country, perhaps I would need one to protect myself or my family. And then if I had one, I would have the opportunity to use it for good purposes or bad purposes. But it would be morally valuable because it would be useful for a good purpose a smoothly-functioning gun would help me to act on moral principle. Here is the difference between law and a smoothly-functioning gun. Every community, in my special sense, does need law for good purposes, whereas the need for a gun depends on various contingencies. I, I might need a gun if I happened to live in rattlesnake country. Even then, I might not. Techniques for identifying the community's standards and for changing the standards and for resolving disputes about their application can be misused, but they are morally valuable because every community needs them for good purposes. Uh, Finally, the third uh, feature of law, which I say is valuable, is its generality. Uh, Aristotle uh, pointed out the value in generality. He saw it clearly because he observed that the tyrants of his day preferred to issue particular decrees rather than to submit themselves to the discipline of standards with some temporal stability and some significant range of application. Perhaps the generality of laws contributed to a tension in Aristotle's thought between his extravagant overstatement of the (coughs) relation between law and justice on the one hand and his view that justice demands equity. He misdescribed justice, at least justice in a certain sense, as lawfulness, and said that everything lawful is, at least in a certain way, just. Aside from the valuable generality of law, his reason, as far as I can see, amounts to no more than a bare suggestion that laws promote and protect the well-being of the community. This explanation is unusually offhand for Aristotle, and his offhand approach suggests that that it was not the burden of his argument in the ethics to make that point. Perhaps he was simply scribbling down a conventional truth along the way, in a discussion of justice and law that had other goals. It seems offhand to me both because the generalization that laws promote and protect the well-being of the community does not support the conclusion that everything lawful is just in any sense. And also because he himself proceeds to point out the frailty of the generalization by conceding that while the law prescribes virtuous actions, he says, it does not prescribe virtuous actions very well when it has been made arbitrarily. And Aristotle also saw the disadvantage of the generality of laws. He insisted that laws are to be applied to particular cases with epiakeia, reasonableness or aptness or perhaps equity, although there's an ambiguous word. Uh, Aristotle explains that error can arise in the application of general norms because the lawmaker needs to impose a general control on conduct, the conduct which may reasonably vary according to the circumstances in which the general norm will apply. So laws are inevitably over general because of the incapacity of lawmakers to tailor a general norm to a variety of circumstances. So citizens and officials need to act with epiakea to avoid applying a general norm in a manner contrary to the lawmakers' own rationale. It is an important insight that the generality of law leads to cases in which its application is not supported by its rationale. It generates arbitrariness in the law that is morally significant in a way that Aristotle did not admit. Because of its generality, law necessarily brings with it certain forms of arbitrariness. The speed limit on a road may change from 30 miles an hour to 50 to 70 as the road leaves a town, in a way that corresponds to the fact that risks depend on road conditions, so that reasonable speed limits depend on road conditions. But the change in the speed limit will come in a step or steps even if the features of the road on which a reasonable speed limit depends uh, change gradually. The reasons why speed limits are not more sensitive to road conditions have to do with two features of law, which we could add to the three I've already mentioned. It's need for intelligibility and the process values that correspond to and enhance its systematic nature. So the value of intelligibility in law uh, applied to speed limits. Well, if the law regulating speed on the road is to be understood, speed limits need to be communicated in a way that's useful to drivers. And it would not be useful to have signposts every five minutes indicating a new and slightly different maximum speed. As for process values, well, if the speed limit is to be enforced in a rule-governed fashion, it needs to be reasonably possible for a law enforcement official to make a case to an independent tribunal that the speed limit at an identifiable time and place has been exceeded. That would be more difficult, eventually it would become impracticable, if the speed limit varied continuously with the relevant features of the the road. So a good lawmaker will adopt traffic regulations that correspond only imperfectly to the conditions that make them reasonable or not reasonable. This is not a matter of their lack of foresight, quite foreseeably do this for reasons of good legal craftsmanship. Their purpose, their good purpose, is to achieve a form of regulation that can serve the person subject to it and can be enforced effectively and fairly in a system and will not encourage pointless disputes. One result of these good techniques of legal craftsmanship is a form of arbitrariness. So good laws, including good speed limits, are laws that achieve good and just purposes in a way that is worth pursuing in spite of the accompanying arbitrariness. There can be no general regulation without the arbitrariness of requiring behavior that is not justified by the purpose of the rule. Therefore, law necessarily brings with it a degree of arbitrariness or irrationality. It would be much too quick uh, to conclude from this that the law has no moral force to the extent of its arbitrariness. Perhaps many drivers are too quick to think that the speed limit on some seemingly safe stretch of road does not matter because it is too low for the conditions. In many cases, the only safe way to drive, and therefore the morally obligatory way to drive, is simply to stick to the speed limit prescribed by the authorities without passing judgment on the forms of arbitrariness (coughs) which undoubtedly... Uh, arise from its generality. But I'm going to argue that the arbitrariness that comes with general regulation sometimes means that there is no moral ob- moral reason to obey the law. Before I make that argument, I want to explain the obverse of the, the, the this point. The, remember I said at the beginning that I, I want to argue that There is no general moral obligation to obey the law, but that moral obligations to obey the law are not generally vitiated by injustice in the law. So I want to address briefly the effects of injustice on the moral force of the law. We can see that the value of the law to a community does not entirely depend on its justice, if we reflect that de facto control over the community and the systematic nature of law and the generality of law are compatible with injustice. It can still be valuable to the community, law can, when it is unjust. So I think the reasonable person does not simply disregard unjust laws. The reasonable person avoids disobedience that will influence the law-abiding dispositions of others in such a way that the law's valuable capacity to coordinate the life of the community is damaged. But that merely collateral reason to obey unjust laws is not the only reason to do so. There are two respects in which the effects of injustice on the moral force of law are limited. First, an unjust law may yet be of value to the community in a way that gives it moral force. And secondly, structural injustices in a regime have no effect whatsoever on the moral force of some laws. That first point, um, an unjust law may yet be of value to a community. My example, which I discuss at some length in the paper, is taxation. Tax is the best example I can think of of a solution to a coordination problem. And yet, how to set a tax is a question on which there can be better and worse uh, views, to which there can be better and worse answers, and a question to which some answers would be extremely unjust and abusive. So we can call it an impure coordination problem what tax will we have it's valuable to have a tax we can say that that in in virtue of the coordination that we will achieve as a community by deciding whether to have an income tax and if so at what level but what level of tax to have and whether to have an income tax are also questions of justice and my point in the paper is that an unjust answer to the question of the level of taxation may still achieve the coordination that's valuable to us as a community. Secondly, an unjust regime sometimes, I think, ought to be obeyed. Imagine the most vile, murderous dictatorship you like, and imagine that it's a community in my sense, so there are cities, and in the capital city there's traffic <coughs> regulation, red lights and green lights controlling movement of cars at intersections, and it's more or less complied with by the populace, and enforced by the regime which put it there for its own abusive purposes. Um, But uh, imagine also that it's useful to the people in the city to get around town. Well, it seems to me that the reasons for you or me to stop at the red lights in that city are precisely the same as the reasons to stop at a red light in in this town or in in England or Italy. And uh, they are reasons that are not affected by the, the injustice of the regime. And reasons to go through a red light in that capital city would be the same considerations of emergency that would justify, in a way, perfectly compatible with the natural law tradition, running through a red light in in this town. So unjust regimes, the injustice of the regime has no necessary impact on the obligation that you and I have to uh, obey some of the laws of their system. I've abbreviated those arguments because I want to get to the point about subsidiarity and the way in which it affects the generality of the obligation that you and I have to obey the law. And I want to explain what I think about this question by telling you the story of the wise electrician, an electrician who reports income to the tax authorities as the law requires, even when he knows that there is no likelihood that the authorities would find out about it, And and he does so not because he thinks the government will use the extra revenue better than he would. In fact, he knows they're not as wise as he is. And it's not because he thinks the tax is just. In fact, he rightly thinks that um, the tax imposes a disproportionate burden on him by comparison with some higher earners. He performs the obligation that the law imposes because he sees the value to the community of the coordination that the law offers. So he responds to what I said is the value of, of an unjust tax, a value which simply becomes irrelevant in some imaginable situations in which a tax is a tool of genocide, a 100% tax on seed grain. The, the wise altruist would pay no attention to that sort of, of rule. But the mere fact that it's unjust is not a reason, in his view, for withholding his tax. But he also knows that the Department of Industry has passed regulations with legal effect requiring all home wiring to have grade five insulation. He admires this law. He knows that grade five insulation will be safe enough for all ordinary household wiring. He knows that the slightly cheaper grade four insulation is safe enough for sealing light circuits under certain building conditions. But he reflects that the uniform standard will both be readily capable of use by less expert electricians than he is without dangerous mistakes. And secondly, that it will be easier for building inspectors to assess compliance without mistakes or costly and pointless disputes. So this law has the value of intelligibility and the process values that I discussed earlier. It deprives no one of liberty in a way that is out of proportion to the assistance it gives to people who need it. So he nods his wise wise head at the good regulation And he always uses grade five wiring in his customers' houses, even when it is not necessary on safety grounds, out of caution, first of all, to avoid giving the misleading impression that he thinks the regulations don't matter. And also, perhaps because he reckons that it's an implied term of his legal agreements with customers that he will use the legally required grade of wiring. But he connects the ceiling fixtures in his own house with the slightly cheaper grade four wiring, contrary to the regulation. His reasoning is that he does not need the service that the law provides to the community, and that this compliance, his compliance, would do nothing to promote the effectiveness of that service. And his violation of the legal obligation does nothing to hinder that effectiveness, and violating the legal obligation will save a little money. Uh, children are law-abiding souls, at least some of them. And I I talked about this with a 12-year-old who told me that he thinks the the wise electrician is a stinker for grasping a benefit that he deprives his uh, customers of, since it would be a bit cheaper to use grade four in their ceiling lights as well. And I think there's some force to that, and it's uh, perhaps a reflection of the fallen state of this world that the wise electrician uh, does as he does using uh, unnecessarily expensive uh, wiring in other people's houses. And perhaps if he had the opportunity to reason with them in the way that he's able to reason with himself, then he, they would, he would be able to extend to them the benefit that he seizes. And perhaps if it were possible for him to reason with the lawmaker as well then the lawmaker with, would withhold uh, the sanction for, for uh, using grade four wiring if the lawmaker even knew about it, which is a possible way of reconciling what I have to say with what Aristotle said, subject to an ambiguity in, in Aristotle's work. So, uh, let me explain that. In, the, in these instances, the tax and the um, electrical wiring, the wise electrician conscientiously obeys the unjust law and deliberately disobeys the just law. And uh, I I wonder whether we can reconcile his approach to the wiring regulation with Aristotle's views by ascribing his action to the epiekeia, or appropriateness, or fitness, that gives dispensation from the letter of the law when its application in the particular case would run contrary to the purposes of the lawmaker. That's what I was suggesting when I imagined... Uh, a different world in which we don't need lawmaking that is unnecessarily general so that the the electrician is able to to have a colloquy with everybody in his community of the kind that he has with himself. Well, I don't think we can can reconcile uh, the wise electrician's behavior with what Aristotle says. Um, Because the lawmaker's purpose in requiring grade five wiring was to promote safety and conforming to the regulation would not run contrary to that purpose. But epiakeia, it seems to me, defeats the application of the law in exceptional circumstances in what Aristotle says. The wise electrician, we might say, rejects the very intent of the law in respect of the wiring in his own house on the ground that in this instance, the law cannot help him to act for the common good. Um, I'm not certain about this and my hasty and inexpert reading of Aristotle leaves an an ambiguity because on the one hand he suggests that it's right to do as the lawmaker would say to do if he were present and the lawmaker would probably say oh go ahead use the grade four wiring that's safe enough but on the other hand Aristotle suggests that it is right to do as the lawmaker would have enacted if he had been aware of such a case and he certainly would have enacted as he did enact so uh, this brings us this the reason the the electrician has for using the cheaper wiring in his own house it brings us to the subsidiary role of law which john finnis has emphasized the subsidiary role of law leads the wise electrician to conclude that he has no general obligation to obey the law the law has a limited jurisdiction over him to promote the common good as finnis points out the fact that its role is subsidiary does not mean that it is of secondary concern It means that the law has the role of a help or service to its subjects. It has the role of helping them to lead reasonable lives with attention to the common good and not the role of absorbing them or leading their lives for them. This discussion of subsidiarity in natural law and natural rights is an instance of the uh, fruitfulness of, of the book because it's a discussion that's of value to students today in understanding the principle of subsidiarity in the European Union where it's very trendy, but it's what an important wide-ranging principle it it is. We can understand the history of federalism in this country or in in my country of Canada as a history of success and failure in achieving subsidiarity in relations between levels of government. But subsidiarity applies not only between the U.K. and Portugal or between Washington, D.C. and Wisconsin – In in natural law and natural rights, it is abstracted to apply between the individual and the authorities in a community. So it applies between the wise electrician and the department of industry. And it's a principle that the authority is capable of providing a help. Common enterprises, uh, Finnis says, should be regarded not as ends in themselves, but as means of assistance and ways of helping individuals to help themselves or more precisely to constitute themselves. Where individuals or families can help themselves by their own private efforts and initiatives without thereby injuring either by act or omission the common good, they are entitled in justice to be allowed to do so. Well, uh, this subsidiarity of law in general, Seems to me is a reason for the obligation that you and I have to obey the law of our community, and also limits it. Limits it not just where the law is unjust, so that a presumption that we ought to obey it is overridden, but limits it where the law provides no service to us. Um, a service, to use the term that uh, Joseph Raz used this morning, and we could understand the service conception of authority that he. Articulates as an articulation of a principle of subsidiarity between individuals and persons who claim authority over them. Now, uh, in reflecting on this idea that subsidiarity provides a reason for and also uh, the, uh, identifies the extent of obligations to obey, it, it uh, occurred to me rather uncomfortably to think about the subsidiarity of the practice of promising because that, too, is a practice in a community uh, in, in a wider sense than I've been using it, um, which is subsidiary, subsidiary in its value to the uh, to the other capacities and resources of, that you and I have as persons. Uh, and it strikes me that the wise electrician probably generally abides by his promises, even if he doesn't generally abide by the law. And uh, this could perhaps be we could distinguish law and law and the pr- practice of promise keeping by reference to the wise electrician's involvement in his own promises and in his relations with persons to whom he makes promises but I th- and that might be sufficient i haven 't thought about that enough, but I think it 's sufficient to point to the arbitrariness of law that I 've been a- identifying this paper as something that distinguishes the obligations that law imposes on us from the obligations we undertake when we promise. The generality of law and the associated arbitrariness combined with its subsidiary role mean that the obligation to obey the law is not general. So my conclusion is that lawmaking authorities in a community do generally have authority over people in their jurisdiction because of the values of the legal system to the community that I've mentioned. They often lose that authority by acting unjustly in making law, yet their authority is not generally affected by the justice or injustice of their acts. The scope of their authority is determined and limited, in part, by the principle of subsidiarity on which its usefulness to the subjects of the law depends. So natural law theorists have traditionally both overstated and understated the connection between law and morality. I still don't know whether I disagree with what Aristotle said, but I will illustrate how I think I disagree with, uh, with John Finnis by mentioning two claims that he makes in an important 21st century work of natural law theory published in the American Journal of Jurisprudence last year. Here's what he concludes in that article about the moral value of law in general. Law is rightly conceived of as by its nature morally valuable, though not in the sense that Joseph Raz attributes to that phrase, according to which the thesis would be making a claim about the way law or the law is actually implemented in history, the obviously false claim that law in its historical manifestations throughout the ages has always or generally been a morally valuable institution. Well, for reasons I've given, I actually think that the Obviously, false claim, as Finnis says, is is actually true. Law, as implemented actually in history, has always been, or generally, a morally valuable institution. By that I don't mean that every law has been morally valuable or every legal system has been better than anarchy would be, Uh, but every community with the institution of law has the valuable (coughs) facilities to coordinate the life of the community in a way that is general and systematic law is morally valuable in some respects, even when it is deeply unjust and even when the best thing to do, if you could, would be to eliminate an abusive regime and to tear up the civil code and the criminal code and start again. Here's what Finnis concludes in that article about the moral obligation to obey the law. In reference to any more or less reasonable, legally posited rule or principle you like to consider, at the moment of decision on an issue to which that rule bears, any obligation it expressly or impliedly purports to impose is fit to be acknowledged by me as truly what it purports to be, that is, the decisive regulator of my action here and now, so decisive that it could be overridden only by some competing moral obligation bearing on me here and now, with such weight that anyone with the community's common good in mind would acknowledge the justice of my treating the latter as overriding the law and its legal moral obligation. The story of the wise electrician shows why this claim is too general. John Finnis is right to concentrate on anyone with the community's good in mind and whether such a person would acknowledge the justice of disobeying the law. But I think that such a person need find no injustice in the way in which the wise electrician wires his house. So it does not take an overriding competing moral obligation to justify disobeying the law. The reasons for conforming to a legal obligation and therefore the moral obligation to obey it depend on whether in imposing that obligation, the law is carrying out its appropriate role in answering the question of what I should decide to do, a role that is subsidiary to my own responsibility for my actions. Human law by nature is arbitrary in its application. The combination of its arbitrariness and its subsidiary role mean that it has no valid general claim to be the decisive regulator of my action.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Endicott. who will be followed by two responders, the first of which is uh, Professor Gerard Bradley, graduate uh, of Cornell Law School, after which he did a brief stint as an assistant district attorney in the borough of Manhattan, city of New York. He moved on to the University of Illinois College of Law and now is professor of law at the University of Notre Dame, where he edits with John Finnis, the American Journal of Jurisprudence, and focuses on the constitutional law of church and state. For many years, he was president of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars and currently is chair of the Federalist Society's Religious Liberties Practice Group, vice president of the American Public Philosophy Institute, and, we're happy to say, a member of the Society of Scholars of Princeton's James Madison program. Welcome, Professor Bradley.
3: Thank you for the introduction. You can tell by the introduction that, unlike John Roberts, I remain keenly aware of my membership in the Federalist Society. Now, Timothy Endicott tells the tale of the wise electrician. Uh, For myself, uh, I confess I'd be happy to be introduced to the merely competent (laughs) and affordable electrician, Uh, but Timothy is offering no such mundane introductions. So I propose to talk about his man, his hero, the wise electrician, His activities, as you probably remember from Timothy's talk, are mainly two. He installs grade 5 insulation throughout all of his customers' homes, but at home he installs grade 4 insulated wire in his own ceiling light circuits because in his expert judgment that's safe for his ceiling and it's a bit cheaper, and so he uses it, even though the local building code is grade 5 for all home wiring full stock. Timothy Endicott approves of this man's uh, regard/slash disregard for the law, observance throughout his practice outside the home, disregard of the law at home. The moral he draws from the tale is that there is no general obligation to obey the law. At least the tale is in support of that assertion by Timothy. Quoting Timothy Endicott, people do not generally need to obey the law. They need to do so when it provides the help it is capable of, and they need to do so when doing otherwise would wrongly damage its ability to provide that help. Now, Timothy deploys our friend the wise electrician in support of a very respectful, and here tentatively stated, disagreement with John Finnis on the question, does the law have the moral force that it claims? In his paper, at least, he paraphrases an answer which he finds or thinks he finds in natural law and natural rights, the answer being, it does. I don't know about this. What I mean to say is I don't know, from my reading of the book, whether Finnis, a natural law or natural right, takes a position on the precise question, does the law have the moral force that it, the law, claims for itself? But a natural law theory of law does... Characteristically, affirm that there's a general moral obligation to obey the law. Finnis affirms it. So, I think there's a real <coughs> dispute between Finnis and Endicott. Here, I should like to offer one consideration in support of what I take to be or the view I attribute to Finnis. That view being that there is a presumptive, general, moral obligation to obey the law which obligation may be defeated by moral considerations. This is the view that Timothy described, or a compact expression of the view that Timothy described reading from or quoting from John's article last year in the American Journal of Jurisprudence. It's the view, I think, that one should stop for red lights even late at night when no one's around, unless there's an emergency. And it's the view that the wise electrician should install grade 5 insulation in his house. Unless, there's a important competing moral consideration which tells him not to. This is the view I associate with Finnis, Finnis and natural law theory in general. The one caveat before I get to the consideration in support of my disagreement here with Timothy. Now, Timothy Endicott wants to get right to the matter of a general moral obligation to obey the law and for that reason he says the wise electrician he stipulates that the wise electrician is breaking the law by putting number four In his ceiling. Timothy puts aside, for this discussion at least, epikeia or the possibility of there being de minimis exceptions to the law. Uh, He permits today no debate about exactly what the law is as applied to the electrician in his home, even though, and I think he he would agree, that it's quite common to think of the law as well as the mind of a lawmaker as holding out the possibility of exceptions or unusual applications of law when the application is within the intention of the lawmaker, but not today. But I must say that Timothy's way of setting up the problem, although it helps us to cabin and specify the question, tends to cast someone, such as myself, who would insist on grade five at home, uh, into the role of a fuss budget, a needler, Uh, perhaps a type A personality, even a bit of a legal tyrant. Now, I say most sincerely that this is casting me decidedly against type, but I do accept the assignment. Now, Timothy anchors his position about there being no general moral obligation to obey the law in a subsidiary or service conception of the law's usefulness vis-a-vis the common good, plus a second, though not secondary, nor is it a side concern for fear of scandalizing the law-abiding. There's nothing wrong here so far. Timothy's concern is to preserve the law, even laws which are imperfect and hand-handed, as many are, as the valuable coordinating tool that it is, and that doing this is only possible if people very largely follow the law. Again, so far so good. But the relevant considerations that is relevant to the case of the wise electrician do not end there. I think a general moral obligation to obey the law arises finally from a consideration Timothy Endicott does not mention. And that consideration is this, that a general moral obligation to obey the law finally arises from the general need for people subject to law to refrain or abstain From judging for themselves what a law is for, how effectively a particular law, legal rule, serves what the law is taken to be for, whatever those ends are. And I think the general need to observe the law arises, in addition, uh, from the need for people to abstain from making judgments about how scandalous their more or less private law breaking would be. I think people need to abstain, at least ordinarily and generally, from such judgments. But these are the judgments the wise electrician makes, and he does propose to act on them. And so the wise electrician at home would give free rein to his own judgment about the thing which the law has made his judgment, <coughs> safety wiring homes. The wise electrician's judgment is grade four. But he trusts and follows his judgment in this act about quite a bit more than wiring, electricity, and home construction, matters about which, at least by hypothesis, he is expert. The wise electrician also judges what the law altogether, and I think without remainder, is for. Whether this law Does or can serve that end or those ends effectively in his case. He judges for himself whether preferring his judgment in this case injures too much societal respect for the law. And in some way, although this I think is not quite explicit in Timothy's paper, I think implicitly it's there, and it is that he judges that it is not unfair to others to prefer his judgment in his own home but to follow the law elsewhere. The wise electrician not only opines but concludes that the service that the law as it applies to his ceiling can provide is nil, that his compliance with the law would do nothing to promote the effectiveness of that service and that his violation of the legal obligation does nothing to hinder respect for the law. And he judges that the only real reason uh, at work here, other than his judgment about safety, is that it will save him a little bit of money. I think there are two problems with this way, Timothy's way of looking at the case of the wise electrician. I think the problems are naivete and that uh, the wise electrician's approach to observing the law would lead to more widespread disregard for the law than either Timothy or I think we can tolerate. So to illustrate illustrate the nivete involved in Timothy's account of the wise electrician's thinking. Now in Timothy's paper he mentioned that enough to allow me to infer that it's not so much a matter of safety straight on, safe and unsafe, as if it's a Manichaean wiring world, which he referred in the paper, and again briefly here, to Judgments by expert electricians under ordinary conditions involving ordinary building conditions about what is safe uh, under certain conditions. I think that safety laws, probably like including this one, are not quite about safety or not, but about relative risks of safety, shifting them around and making prudent judgments about who is fit to assume which risks of what kind of unsafe conditions but i do think that the electrician's judgment though wise is not perfect he cannot assess without mistake all of the risks of wiring his home with number 4 that these risks are not assumed only by him and his home his own for example invited guests and uninvited visitors will probably not be given opportunities to make an informed waiver of the possibilities of the fire that might result from number four insulation. Should there be a fire, the municipal firefighters will undoubtedly respond. If they do, the firefighters and all of those in their speeding path will be put in peril. This home, I take it, is insured and probably has a mortgage on it. Both the insurance company and the mortgage holder probably are assuming that the home is up to code, and if it is not, has our wise electrician told them, and if he has told them, what has been their response, and has he complied with their requests, possibly even demands to correct the condition? Uh, The wise electrician observes the law outside of his home, partly, Timothy says, uh, to ease and to clarify home inspectors' jobs, but there's no reason to think, so far considered at least, that his home is exempt from inspection. And if his home should be inspected, he'll have to do the job a second time, which simply may impose additional cost and eliminate the monetary advantage of wiring with number four in the first place. it will also put the inspector in a perhaps difficult condition of having the inspector to choose between coming down in what the inspector might think is a more or less needless act or show of legal force that is coming down on this electrician at home, but thereby violating his own legal obligations, I think. The point is that while there are distinctively private aspects to the case of the wise electrician, he is a skilled craftsman, he is at home, he appears to be willing to assess, able to assess, and willing to accept certain risks to himself and his own, I think the common good in the welfare and well-being of others has traction even there, even on his ceiling. Uh, I would describe this as saying that the wise electrician may run from the common good, but he'll find it difficult to hide. But that's just to look at it as if the only purpose of the law is safety. But we can't rule out that there are other secondary purposes to the law. The law about insulation and building materials and uniform requirements about those things may also have elements of economic redistribution in them. That is to say, it may well be part of public authority's aim in setting up uniform building code provisions like this one to create a certain competition among certain suppliers. It might even be that the leading maker of grade four insulation is a bad corporate citizen Perhaps it's a foreign firm which exploits its workers. But because of a free trade agreement, it might be impossible to prevent competition and insulation from abroad. But the local authorities are at least trying to reduce domestic demand. Now, in the real world, of course, laws like this one, building materials and supplies, are often an unstable mix of worthy and unworthy legislative motives. This law or laws like them often have elements of guild or special special interest influences on them. My point is not to endorse these influences, but rather (coughs) to say that the ends or purposes of the law are very often more opaque or at least more obscure than most people think they are. And then finally there's the question or matter raised by Timothy's 12-year-old respondent, who thinks the wise electrician is a stinker because, and that, those were the words of a 12-year-old, although it's quite, quite descriptive, uh, but in my words, it, the question is whether it's fair to his customers not to give them an opportunity, perhaps discreetly and with full disclosure, the choice to put number four in their homes and save a little bit of money there. Again, perhaps discounting the price to these customers because of some risk they're undertaking, taking on of inspection, having to redo the work. But that's the question. Is it it unfair to the customers? Second point about how portable the example of the wise electrician is and what I think is the real likelihood of more widespread disregard for law than either Timothy or I would think is safe. The wise electrician obeys the law, Timothy says, in part, to avoid scandalizing the law-abiding. But I think this matter of scandal, leading people to get the wrong idea about how important it is to observe the law, worrying that will give people the idea that they can break the law, not willy-nilly, but they might want to think about breaking the law often. But that's what I mean by scandal. Setting a bad example, leading people to have a, a more disrespect for the law than they ought to have. And we take it, the two of us, that the law ought to be respected. But I think this matter of scandal cuts both ways. I don't think there's any non-arbitrary way to limit the example of the wise electrician to either electricity or to wise electricians or even to building materials more generally. That is to say, the picture we have is of someone subject to the law, directed by the law, to use number five, but who does not, because that individual judges that in this case he, but it could be he or she, knows what common good or what social ends the law is supposed to serve. This same individual judges that the law's service to that end or to those ends is nil, at least negligible. And this person judges that unilateral action on his or her part affects, affects only myself but is oneself and one's own. The part of the judgment here is that one's acts are basically, purely self-regarded. But I think this way of looking at the law uh, is quite portable and will lead to uh, more law-breaking than we can handle. Now, I don't mean to suggest that everybody will become a wiring expert. I don't mean to suggest that sort of citizens generally will stare at the TV on Saturday afternoons and watch all the workshop shows and home gardening shows and turn out that they can do everything or think they can do everything in their house that the law tells them not to do. I don't think that's the case. But I do mean that I think when it comes to these matters, what's the law for? How effectively is public authority with its laws and their enforcement serving the things laws are for? Are we talking about matters that affect me and my own, and are within my ken, and don't really affect other people? I think when it comes to these matters, citizens are perhaps typically know-it-alls. That is to say, they will judge, perhaps under the influence of the temptation to make an exception for themselves, that it's only them, that is they and their own, who are affected they will conclude too hastily what the law is for. And although I would say almost always ill-equipped to judge how effectively the law would serve those ends, they'll make the judgment that the law, at least as applied to them, would be an ass. So finally, I think I could state my point of disagreement with Timothy Endicott this way. I agree that people should obey the law because the law helps them to promote or serve the common good. And it is necessary to prevent damage to the law in order to preserve the law as the instrument by which people cooperate for the common good. But in light of the foregoing consideration and in light of the way people tend to be, I think that affirming a general moral obligation to obey the law is necessary to successfully attain or achieve those two purposes. But in the real world, for the law to promote the common good and for the law to be respected, I think you have to affirm a general moral obligation to obey
1: And thank you, too, Professor Bradley. Our second uh, responder is Professor Stephen Smith who is Warren Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of San Diego. Graduated from Brigham Young University and Yale Law School. Professor Smith has published articles and books in the areas of religious freedom, constitutional law, and legal theory. Uh, some of his top publications, including a book called For Ordained Failure, The Quest for a Constitutional Principle of Religious Freedom, and just last year, Law's Quandary, published by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor Smith.
4: Well, when I uh, got the invitation to participate in this conference, and, and later when I looked over the program and saw who the other participants were, I have to admit I felt a little bit like the person who occasionally kicks a soccer ball around in the backyard. And then suddenly gets plucked up and put on the field for a game between Manchester United and Real Madrid. Um, it's a great honor, and I've long been an admirer of John Finnis' work, and during the time that I spent at Notre Dame, I became uh, an admirer of John as a person. So it is a great honor to participate, but there's no getting around the fact of sort of inadequacy for the task. Nonetheless, you do the best you can. So I, I want to, uh, everything I say here will be said tentatively and with great trepidation. Uh, and in that timorous spirit, Uh, I would suggest that uh, I think uh, Professor Endicott has written a paper that is very interesting, that's important, and for the most part true. Um, In fact, I think it may be important and true in ways that he didn't necessarily intend and might not be entirely happy about. So in these remarks, I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Now, I should start by noticing that political legal authority can seem, and for me is, a mysterious thing. Uh, Michael White suggests that in modern times, the concept of authority seems to have slipped away from us. We barely grasp anymore the idea of what White calls natural authority, and so we try to compensate by developing theories of non-natural authority based on consent or implied consent or similar notions. But these theories are notoriously problematic. An attraction of John Finnis's account, by contrast, is that it makes authority seem less mysterious. Uh, Like White, Finnis puts a little stock in theories that derive authority from covenant under consent, But he thinks we can understand authority by reference to two things. First, the need for coordinating norms that permit us as members of a community to live in accordance with practical reasonableness and to serve the common good. And second, the ability of some person or persons or institution to fulfill that need. On the whole, I think Professor Endicott seems to share this approach. Authority is the product of, the value of, or the need for coordination. Now, this coordination account of authority is refreshingly realistic and commonsensical. But does it explain and hence dissolve the mystery of political and legal authority? Surely there is some important relationship between legal authority, coordinating norms, and reasons to act that may arise from those norms. But what exactly is that relationship? Is it something like a constitutive relationship, like that between the conductor of the orchestra and the various instruments and musicians that make up the orchestra? Coordinating the disparate elements is the conductor's entire reason for being and the essence of what he is and does. Uh, is the relation between legal authority and coordinating rules providing reasons for action, something like that? Or is it an important but more contingent relationship, like that maybe between being a police officer and coordinating traffic after a tree falls in a road? That sort of coordination is a valuable service that police officers sometimes provide. But other people who aren't police officers can also perform this service. In emergency, uh, volunteers or passersby often spontaneously step in to do it. And conversely, someone might well be a police officer even if he or she never performs this particular service. In a similar vein, it might be that providing coordinating norms is merely a valuable service that political and legal authorities often perform, but it's not what essentially constitutes them as authorities. In this case, the reflection of thinkers like Finnis and Endicott on coordination Might tell us valuable things about an important contingent feature of law and authority, but might not actually provide us with a satisfactory account of what and whence authority is. I think Professor Endicott's paper pushes us to consider these questions. On its face, the paper develops two ostensible disagreements between Endicott and Finnis about legal authority. Endicott thinks that Finnis both overstates and understates the extent of authority that the coordination function of law entails. Finnis overstates the extent of law's authority, Endicott thinks, by failing to recognize that the necessary generality of legal rules entails arbitrariness, as he calls it, Uh, and this in turn means that in some situations law does not in fact provide good reasons to act in accordance with law's general requirements. But Finnis also understates law's authority because he fails to recognize that the value to the community of the coordination that law supplies makes it authoritative, gives us reasons to act in accordance with its requirements, even in situations in which the law may be deeply unjust or may emanate from an unjust regime. Now, Although I'm not sure whether Finnis does or needs to disagree with these claims about law's authority, the claims in their substance seem to me to be correct. In fact, they may be more correct than Endicott wants them to be, because upon reflection they may lead us to the conclusion that the coordination account is unsatisfactory as the basic account of political and legal authority. So how might this happen? Well, we can take the claims one at a time. So take first the claim that because law is general and therefore necessarily overinclusive to some extent, there will be situations in which the law doesn't give us good reasons to act in accordance with its requirements. Endicott illustrates this point with the example of the wise electrician that's been much discussed. Um, But a slightly simpler and more familiar example, Jerry's already alluded to it, is that of the red light at midnight. Driving home at midnight after an exhausting day, you come to a red light, and you know from experience that it won't change to green for several minutes. You understand the coordinating reasons for traffic lights, and usually you respect them. But in this case, after stopping momentarily, you can see perfectly well that there are no cars coming for miles. So you conclude that the traffic law gives you no sufficient reason to wait for the light to change. I haven't yet had a chance to change my mind in reaction to Jerry's comments, so I'll say for now that uh, I find Endicott's electrician example and my stop, stop and light example to be persuasive as far as they go. But now an asymmetry seems to arise because even if these laws give subjects no adequate reason to comply in these cases, it would also be reasonable for the government to insist on its right to enforce the laws against violators even in such situations. If somehow government manages to catch the non-conforming electrician or the midnight traffic light runner and decides to prosecute, the prosecutor would have a strong argument opposing any legal defense based on the claim that under these circumstances there wasn't any good reason to comply. We've just heard from the prosecutor give an argument to that. Or the prosecutor might quote, Joseph Brown: the whole point and purpose of the a-
1: hoping there's a wise electrician in the audience <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Thank you also, Professor Smith. Uh, uh, Professor Rendicott, as you might expect, has reserved a few minutes uh, to uh, uh, counter some of the observations of the responders, and uh, he'll uh, he'll take over from here, after which uh, the floor will be open for questions uh, from the audience uh, to all members
2: of the panel. Thank you, I'm I'm grateful to to you both for uh, those points, and I won't uh, be able to or even try to respond to everything you've said. Jerry Bradley pointed out the complexity of the common good uh, which is another instance of the illumination that a reader can uh, take from natural law and natural rights and the the uh, potential massive complexity of my situation of the what wiring the electrician chooses is an important reminder of that uh, complexity, I forgot to mention that uh, in in his jurisdiction it 's simply an offense to install the wiring they 've got a very sensible planning regime that imposes no legal consequences on the fact that a house has wiring that is not of grade five um, and that they have uh, strict occupiers liability so that he 's not affecting any visitor either while he o- owns the house or or afterwards. And uh, I didn't say just how wise he is because he (laughs) knows that uh, he's wise enough to know with with confidence that his visitors are at no risk. And the market for grade four insulation relies on its use in the automobile industry so that there's no distortion or possibility of abuse or corruption in his purchase of it. Uh, And there are other complexities that I didn't add either. uh, (laughs) Now, uh, so I wonder if I'm just running away from the crucial point that Jerry makes about the importance of deference to authorities on this crucial question of what the law is for. And by running away progressively from the potential scenarios that Jerry raised, I wonder whether there's uh, anywhere left. And what I'm wondering is whether this important principle that you and I shouldn't be, uh, too proud of our own capacity to assess what a law is for whether that ap- appropriate attitude of humility is, uh, is uh, requires general deference to the authorities and I don't think it does not only because I can keep thinking up swizzes in connection with the electrician but because we can think of radically simpler situations in which it's lucidly apparent to all of us what the law is for. Um, Stephen Smith mentioned the old uh, question of whether cars should always stop at red lights. I don't, I don't even want to talk about where the cars should stop at all at red lights. Cars uh, terrify me. And, <laughs> um, and, and I think there may be a general obligation to stop a car at a red light. Uh, But uh, think of a pedestrian. Um, The the law of of Princeton, New Jersey, uh, let's suppose, requires pedestrians to go to the crosswalk and cross there. And and you live across the street from um, an all-night Starbucks. And at four in the morning, there's no traffic. And here, I've I've imagined a a situation where uh, (coughs) we don't need to defer to authorities on the question of what the law is for. Uh, we all know what it's for it's for the for public order in the broadest sense of good uh, a, a situation in which we can go about our our own affairs well with respect for and in safety from others in other words it's for the regulation of traffic and there isn't any traffic um, and then it seems to me, well, I, I'm not rash enough to make any statements about cars, that uh, that there's no need for deference to authorities in some situations. So perhaps I still disagree with Jerry. Perhaps, though, we've got to a point that he suggested that I reflected on in writing this paper, that uh, perhaps... Jerry's objections to what I've said will make you conclude that I've only made an argument for what he called de minimis uh, principles, Uh, principles where it's trivial. You know, why not walk across the street? Why why go down 50 yards to the crosswalk when there's no traffic, even if the law says so? Well, uh, and the principle uh, de minimis non curat lex, the principle that the law is not concerned with trifles, is a principle of subsidiarity, I think. A principle that there 's no point that the law shouldn 't take itself too seriously, and then let 's hope that uh, officials wouldn 't prosecute and courts would throw it out if somebody prosecuted you for jaywalking when when there 's no traffic i don 't know um, but i 'm not sure that uh, that what i 've said amounts merely to uh, a de minimis um, um, sort of principle about how you and I ought to treat the law. I don't think it does. Uh, now Stephen Smith, um, the, yeah, does this, uh, do these points about the rather contingent value of the coordination that the law potentially offers, uh, do they um, make a, a hash of the idea of of the authority of law? Um, You know, I I think that the the, uh, moral force of a de facto stop sign, uh, interesting idea, um, depends on us all not not knowing that it's not a legal stop sign. And I I just wonder if the coordination offered in the tax example that I discussed in the paper is an answer to part of what, what you said, Stephen, about the relation between coordination and authorities. Because a tax is an example of a... I claimed of a solution to a coordination problem, (coughs) and it's absolutely crucial who offered the solution. I was in a blackout in Toronto once, and the blackout killed all the traffic lights around the city, and I had to drive across the city, and at many intersections there were uh, citizens who stepped into the middle and uh, started directing traffic, and sometimes it was a bit of a disaster, and sometimes it was really useful. Uh, And... Uh, it's rather, I think it's rather an important feature of, of the coordination that law offers that at any one of those intersections at any point it would have been appropriate for a, a law officer, a, a police officer, to step in and say, I'll take over with authority. It's rather valuable to have someone who can sort it out with an authority that is part of the system uh, with which law imposes the obligations that it claims to impose And tax is, is, does the coordination come first or the authority? Of course, it's the fact that Parliament issued the tax that makes it authoritative and gives it coordination. And conversely, it is partly the fact that Parliament is capable of solving this problem that gives me a reason to go along with the authority of Parliament. So I don't think it's a problem for the idea of the authority of law and its relations with coordination, that in a sense, the the coordination it offers comes from its authority. Well, of course, that's true. And from a different perspective, its authority comes from its capacity to coordinate. But in the case of my behavior, as a recipient of an order to pay some awful percentage of my income to somebody I don't even know, why should I do that? Why on earth would I do that? Well, partly because by going along with that scheme, I can uh, participate in a solution to a problem we have together, that none of us can solve alone. So I think coordination gives me a reason to do what the authorities say to do. In that case, I don't know if that's an answer to it. Mm-hmm. So. Thanks.
1: And thank you again, Professor Rendicott. You've all uh, uh, paid very rapt attention, and now it's your turn to pose questions to any or all members of the. Uh, yes, sir. Yes.
2: Thank you. Uh yeah, i I I certainly haven't offered in the paper uh, any uh theory of federalism or, or a theory of subsidiarity I drew on the paper in the paper on uh, on what uh, John Finnis says about this general principle in natural law and natural rights. It's relation to federalism is actually extremely complex, and and I said something about how Canada and the United States have succeeded and failed at attending to this principle. Most of what they had to do, the constitution makers in the 1860s in Canada or in the 18th century in the United States, much of what they had to do was to answer questions to which the general principle of subsidiarity as, for instance, if they'd had the benefit, they... Might, might have read about it in Natural Law and Natural Rights, gives no definite answer. In other words, the job of constitution makers or European union makers is to a large part to, de- to determine the indeterminacies or to provide a determinatio, as Natural Law and Natural Rights calls it, in answer to questions of the level at which education or health or uh, or law enfor- criminal law enforcement ought to be carried out. Um, and, and then the, the principle as a control on, on good constitution-making needs to be uh, applied in the context of an understanding of the particular community. So it's an extremely complicated matter to, to answer the question of what level of government ought to undertake certain uh, functions or whether it ought to be left to the guild or the family or, or, or the church or, or, to the, or the trade union. Well, I, I guess um, I didn't
4: say much in my comment or in my full paper, really, about that question. I, it did seem to me, this was one thing that puzzled me a little, because I did think that uh, Timothy was using the term in a way that um, was a little different than I thought the way John Finnis uses it in, in the book and the way I'd usually heard it used. It seemed to, I, I can see now how there is a relation between the two, but it seemed to me that the point in the paper uh, that the use in the paper was more along the line subsidiary, meaning something like the authority well, the obligation that I might have to obey the law is still always subsidiary to my more general obligation to be accountable for what I do and do what is right and so forth, you know, that it couldn't. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but it didn't seem to be much in terms of, you know, the level of government that, that is best suitable to, to deal with different kinds of questions. And if you did try and use it that way, I don't know, it seems to me that it might help in allocating authority, but we typically don't think that it defines authority. I mean, you might think, for example, that under federalism or subsidiarity, uh, something should be dealt with at the state level rather than, than by Congress. But if Congress does it and the Supreme Court upheld, upholds it, we typically don't say, I think, well, you know, subsidiarity means that it lacks legal authority. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it would solve the, that, that uh, direction, could solve the kind of problems we're talking about.
3: No, the reason why I don't think it plays a great role in this discussion, Jim, is that my opinion is, and it's, I think, displayed in my paper, that although public authority can make a mistake in prescribing number four and number five in a given instance, they may even make a mistake in having uniform standards which don't admit exceptions for some people's homes. But I do think there's a common good in safe wiring, and the public authority rightly prescribes certain minimum criteria for safe wiring for some of the reasons I did mention Uh, There's a commercial world out there of banking, mortgages, and insurance, which depends upon certain minimum standards, understandings of people, business visitors, and others about the safety of homes. So I think it doesn't actually have much to do with this case. And the autonomy of craftsmen's guilds or whatever other uh, connotation of subsidiary that might be relevant to this discussion, I, I think don't really have much traction upon the question that we're really trying to get at.
1: Other questions? Yes, sir. Um, the question directed specifically to Timothy because it
4: was an aspect <coughs> of your paper Tennessee which I found someone like there whereas I didn't find any respondents on um, it. it may seem a trivial point, but I'm just uh requesting clarification really. Sometimes
2: Well, uh, it's too big a job for now for me to uh, hold myself accountable for the ways I used the word throughout the paper without going back to it. Maybe I should. Uh, I'll tell you the way I meant to use it when I said, for instance, that uh, that there is no general obligation to obey the law or that uh, I I don't know if I said this, but I meant to say that it's a, a general truth about legal systems, that they are morally valuable and so on what did i mean by general in those cases uh i guess i'm i'm not sure if john finnis uses the term general i think he does or but i know he uses the word presumptive and perhaps i meant to use it in in that sort of fashion it's a general truth in this sense about cars that they have engines um uh, and uh that doesn't mean to say there's no such thing as a car without an engine uh, but uh you can presume that a car has an engine in virtue of its being a car, and there's something uh, missing if it it doesn't have an engine. So it's not far from saying it's a a feature of the nature of law. Um, In other words, something you need to understand about law if you're you're to understand what law is. So there there may be a legal system that uh, is... uh, Morally ought to be uh, abolished or uh, shouldn't be obeyed in any respect. That would be an exception to a presumption that's worth making about, uh, in, in our practical reasoning about the legal systems of countries we run into.
1: Other questions? We've had the left. How about the center and the right? (laughs) <laughs> Go- going once going twice I'll say thank you very much and we look forward to seeing you all at 9.15 tomorrow thank you, thank
3: you. Very very time, nice. General, meaning presumptive approach.